just a quick heads up, this episode will discuss some potentially sensitive topics. So if you're listening with younger children or in a setting where you'd rather not hear people overhear you listening to sensitive topics, you might want to save this episode for later. Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast at Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm your host, Eric Sintel, and in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about young people and mental health. Okay, so this has obviously been a hot topic and an important topic in the media for quite a while now, but I don't know that we necessarily always discuss it in the most productive ways in the media, um, and we certainly don't talk about the role that the church might be able to play in trying to help young people with their mental health. So one exception would be the Springtide Institute. So the Springtide Institute is a research organization, it's a Christian organization ran by Christians, and they, they do a lot of research about Gen Z and millennials. Um, well, actually just Gen Z, not even millennials. They're really focused on people aged 25 and under because they are hoping to help churches help better understand those that demographic and then help churches and help older Christians be able to build relationships with the younger generation and and to nurture them and disciple them in their faith. Um, so the Springtide Institute is uh, ran by Executive Director Josh Packard, who I have interviewed for this podcast. Uh, we talked about his book, Church Refugees, um, and we also talked about the Springtide Institute and some of its work. Um, they have done a really great job, I think, of doing some really thorough, detailed survey studies, survey research with you know several thousands of young people. Um, and what they have found is that even in um, the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated, you know, the people, the young people who, if you ask them what's your religion, they'll say, "Well, I don't have any religion." those people are still very much open to spirituality. Um, they very much, you know, say that there is a role for spirituality in their lives and that they're seeking that or looking for that. So I think this is really important and really interesting. Um, and especially if we put this into conversation with mental health. Some of the Springtime Institute's re recent research and publications have focused on Gen Z and mental health. Um, and what they have found is that social connection is really key to helping teens and early 20-somethings with their mental health. Social connection also happens to be key to developing meaningful relationships across generations and, um, and trying to disciple the next generation into Christ. So um, what is it about social connection? that's so important? Well, obviously we're social creatures. Um, the Bible shows us in community with each other, you know, Adam or Adam, humanity, is um, given the help meet of Eve or life. And if you don't know why I'm talking about uh, Adam, humanity, and Eve life, you gotta go back and listen to Eric Ruin's Genesis 1 through 3. <laughs> so um, in the Bible itself, in the opening pages, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And he creates a helpmate, Eve. So, and you see throughout the whole Bible, um, and culminating perhaps in Jesus, community, relationship, 
you know, God comes down to earth in the form of Jesus just to be closer to his creation and his people. Uh, the Trinity is inherently relational, right? God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit exist in relation to each other, in relationship with each other. So we are inherently social, and social connection is very good for our uh, overall well-being. You know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the social isolation people experienced was really tough for a lot of people, even introverts like me. So that's one aspect of it. Um, I think another aspect of it is when we are socially connected, we are much better able to recognize and address issues coming up with our with each other. And that especially applies across generations. So as parents, grandparents, or uh, friends to younger kids, um, we can create social connections and foster relationships where we have, we can become the kind of people that kids come to with questions or come to with issues. We can become the kind of people who can then speak into those kids' lives. Um, so what prompted this episode in part was a, a recent uh, survey from the Centers for Disease Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, um, they released a report titled Suicidal Thoughts and Behaviors Among High School Students. And this is a, based on 2021 survey data. And this updates the same survey from 2009 to 2019. So this, the CDC did this survey every year, 2009 to 2019. And then something happened in 2020 that interrupted it. Um, but then they did the same survey again in 2021. And here's what they found. 30% um, of high school girls seriously considered suicide in 2021, compared to 24% in 2019. 24% in 2019 is also shockingly high, but that's a 6% jump in two years. 24% of high school girls actually made a suicide plan in 2021. They had a plan in place that they could implement. And that's up from 20% in 2019. And 13% of high school girls actually attempted suicide in 2021, up from 11% in 2019. So let me pause there. I just threw out a bunch of numbers, but essentially one in three high school girls in 2021 seriously considered suicide. One in four high school girls made a suicide plan. And one in 10 high school girls implemented a plan. Why? Well, the data continue. 60% um, of high school girls reported feeling, quote, sad or hopeless in 2021. And this is not limited to any group. Um, these rates rose across the board for white, black, Hispanic, Asian, um, different, you know, socioeconomic status. This is very much a general phenomenon among female students. Okay, so now it's really easy to blame the COVID-19 pandemic and that social isolation. Um, I would say that because that's too easy to blame it on that, we've got to be critical, right? Because keep in mind in 2019, 24% of high school girls seriously considered suicide. One in four, that's way too many, right? Um, 
you know, and I would like the number to be zero, but realistically, I mean, there are serious mental health issues such as um, chemical imbalances in the brain that cause depression that can't be alleviated except with medical intervention, you know, medication. Um, there are things like that that in in our uh, in our bodies in our society, and so you're always going to have some percentage of people in any population seriously considering suicide because you're going to have some percentage of people who have that kind of deep, deep um, depression that you know we're not talking feeling blue for a week. We're talking like hopeless and completely unmotivated to do anything for months at a time um we you're always going to have some of that okay but 24 percent that is way higher than you would expect based on those kinds of uh, mental health issues driven by chemical imbalances so there's got to be something going on in the culture and society um so and it and it predated COVID-19 Maybe COVID-19 worsened it, um, maybe not, but either way, I don't think we can just say, well, COVID-19 affected teens' mental health, because teens' mental health has been a big issue for a long time. We've had epidemic rates of depression and anxiety in teenagers uh, for several years now. Okay, so other people will blame uh, social media use. And this is actually a very popular, uh, very popular target to blame, especially for teen girls' mental health. Um, there are some fairly influential writers and thinkers out there who, um, both Christian and secular, who really point the finger at social media and especially Instagram. And studies have found that using Facebook for several hours a day or scrolling Instagram for a couple hours a day has serious effects on girls' body image, their self-esteem, their sense of self-worth. But there's also research that suggests, and, and some of it's the same research, you know, you have to kind of read through it to find out exactly um, how they're qualifying their claims. But research also shows that about two hours of screen time a day doesn't really have any negative effects. <laughs> uh, I know all the parents out there are freaking out right now. What? Um, but but about two hours of like playing video games, watching TV, doing social media, um, you know, is probably too much. Probably an hour too much, I would say, um, because you're losing time you could spend doing other things. But it's not going to cause depression or anxiety <laughs> in people. Um, even teenagers, but uh, people who are already depressed, people who are already anxious, are probably more likely, according to the research, to use social media for two and a half, three, four, five hours, really problematic lengths of time. And so there's kind of like this correlation causation chicken or egg situation where um, yes, studies have found social media can negatively affect people's self-esteem, sense of self-worth, their mental health, it can worsen depression and anxiety, but is that because people who are depressed and anxious are gravitating toward doom scrolling through Twitter or 
uh, scrolling through Facebook, wishing their lives were as perfect as all these people they see, um, looking through Instagram, wishing they looked like those uh, models and influencers. You know, it, I think that that's probably more likely that people who already have these kind of mental health struggles are drawn to and get sucked into social media. Um, whereas most people who don't have those underlying issues are not going to use the social media to the same excessive amount or degree. And it's not, you know, you're not going to see the same kind of effects or correlations or relationships of the use and the mental health. Um, so I don't, I think social media has a lot of flaws and, and has a lot of horrible effects in society, but I don't think we can blame it entirely, certainly not entirely. And I don't think we can even necessarily blame it for the majority of teen mental health issues or early 20 something mental health issues. Partly, okay, so I, I think there are two big things that I would point to more than social media or even the pandemic. Number one is just general social acceptance of mental health. Um, I'm a millennial, I'm an older millennial, 39 years old, um, or I turned 39 this September. And if for my generation, it's still fairly stigmatized to talk about mental health. Um, I have never felt super comfortable admitting to people that I have attended counseling, that I've you know, had some mental health issues that I needed to get help with. Um, younger kids, you know, the college kids I'm teaching have no issue whatsoever saying things like, you know, I really sorry I wasn't in class yesterday, but I really needed a mental health day. I've been struggling a lot with depression and anxiety. And, and I mean, that, that's just not weird to them at all. They feel very comfortable talking about mental health, acknowledging mental health struggles and challenges. Um, and to be honest with you, <laughs> my sense, okay, I haven't done any research or scientific study of this, but my sense based on my students over the last few years, is that what I would describe as I'm super stressed <laughs> or I'm kind of down today, they describe as depression or anxiety. Um, and, and so I think there's a little bit of difference or generational difference in terminology and what we mean by those words. So we have had epidemic rates of anxiety and depression among teenagers and and Gen Z or under 25 year olds for many years now. Part of that may simply be that they're much more comfortable acknowledging the problems that we've all had forever. Um, and part of it might be that they are more apt to use uh, the language that like I would reserve for more extreme cases. You know, like when I use the word depression, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, six solid months of feeling hopeless and demotivated um, and unable to um, get any kind of energy going. Um, and, I, and that's partly based on, uh, to be honest with you, my freshman psychology class where we learned about the diagnostic manual that psychologists use and, you know, depression, clinical depression is technically like a six month period of these symptoms. 
And so, you know, when I say depression, I'm thinking clinical depression. You know, when I say anxiety, I'm thinking like anxiety disorder. And so I might say, you know, I'm feeling anxious, but I wouldn't say I'm struggling with anxiety um, because I'm thinking of this more clinical uh, diagnosis. Gen Z, you know, is just, they just don't think that way, at least based on my observation of my students in college over the last few years. So maybe some percentage of this epidemic rate, this huge, incredibly high rate of teens and young 20-somethings with suicide, with uh, suicidal thoughts or depression or anxiety, some of that might be just comfort talking about it. Some of it might be terminology, um, but a lot of it's real. A lot of it's real. Um, and I think that um, a number of things contribute to it. But one of the biggest things that contributes to it, especially for girls, is something that we don't talk nearly enough about. We don't talk enough about it in our society. We don't talk enough about it in our churches. According to research, according to data, about half of all women in the United States experience some form of sexual harassment or violence by their teenage years. So a 2008 study surveyed over a thousand U.S. students in seventh through twelfth grades and it found, quote, rates of pure sexual assault were high, ranging from 26% of high school boys to 51% of high school girls. School was the most common location of pure sexual victimization. Okay, so we're not talking about stranger danger. We're not, we're talking about peers, you know, other teenagers um, making unwelcome comments, maybe giving some unwelcome touching or grabbing to more serious, <clears throat> not that those aren't serious, but more severe coercive uh, situations. So, you know, as I'm reading this study, um, you know, that, that rate just jumped out at me as incredibly high. And I wondered, well, how are they defining sexual violence and or sexual assault? Um, and they do include things like unwelcome comments and which made me think, well, how is this not a hundred percent, you know, based on how I remember high school. Um, so, so I do think that this statistic has some weight to it, some credibility to it. Um, so that's a 2008 study in 2019. Um, so this is the study that found that 24% of high school girls seriously considered suicide. That same study in 2019 by the CDC found that 26% of high school students, both male and female, reported experiencing dating violence. So a boyfriend or girlfriend hitting them, pushing them, slapping them, grabbing them. Sexual violence from a partner and sexual violence from a non-partner. And that 26%, um, according to the data, actually masks the extent of the problem, okay? Among female high school students, about 9% reported dating violence or abuse, over 12% experienced sexual violence from a dating partner, and 16.6% suffered sexual violence from a non-partner. Those percentages um, pooled the average rates among boys, resulting in the overall average of 26%. So for boys, each of those rates are much lower. Um, you know, a fraction of what girls experience. 
So I would argue that 26% is actually kind of hiding how frequently girls experience this kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of this is happening at school. The one place where they have to go by law, they're required to go to this place where they're going to be in this, uh, facing the same victimizers, the same unwelcome comments, unwelcome touching, or the people who did worse. Um, and, uh, and, and they have to go there. They don't have a choice. So if you want to arrest if you want to make someone sad and hopeless, put them in a dangerous, threatening situation that they can't escape from, that they're powerless to stop. I mean, this, it's horrifying. Um, and so to me, these things go hand in hand, right? So um, I hear the Holy Post podcast talking about this CDC report that, you know, 60% of teenage girls in 2021 reported feeling sad or hopeless. And then in a separate podcast, I hear someone talking about the rates of sexual violence in high schools by high school students against high school students. And, and I don't think I'm, I don't think that I'm out of bounds to put two and two together because my, like I just said, I mean, how, how hopeless, how sad would you be if you had been victimized or if you felt um, just harassed all the time and you can't escape it because by law you have to go to this place where it happens and you can't escape the people doing it um, because teachers can't, you know, be there monitoring every single second of every single day uh, for all students. And, and so it just is an awful situation. No wonder, no wonder so many teen girls feel sad and hopeless. No wonder so many of them experience uh, suicidal thoughts and make suicide plans and even decide to try to commit suicide. So I think we need to talk about this in our society. We need to talk about it in our churches too. There's a tendency for people in churches to kind of think, oh, well, that's out there. That's a problem out there, out in the world. But the Catholic uh, sex abuse scandals and the more recent Southern Baptist Convention sex abuse scandal show that that's not true at all. That it is absolutely in our churches and in our congregations. There have been, um, there are a lot of Christians doing really great work to try to rescue victims of sex trafficking. Um, and according to those experts, sex trafficking victimization is not out there, but it, you know, statistically speaking, you're just as likely to be a victim of sex trafficking or sexual assault or, or something along those lines if you're in a church or a member of a church than if you're not. Right? So in other words, being a Christian, being a member of a church does not somehow shield or protect you from these kinds of things. Social connections can be a huge key to trying to address what is often described as rape culture. This pervasive culture of unwelcome comments and touching and coercion and an outright assault and abuse that kind of gets brushed under the rug, brushed to the side, excused, explained away, minimized. Um, we need social connection because we need to be the people that a girl will come to and say, this is happening and I need help. 
Um, we need to be the people to say that can recognize when boys are talking or acting inappropriately and correct them. Uh, we need to be plugged in to the lives of our young people and we need to try to intervene. Um, and, and that's all kind of a cure, so to speak, but a prevention is worth much more than the cure. You know, so we have an eight-year-old son and we have already been trying to talk to him um, just as it comes up about things like consent. And it's not like we sit down and have this formal conversation and, you know, define consent in the dictionary, but we just, you know, we'll say like, don't hit people's bottoms. Don't, that's not appropriate. You know, I mean, just simple things like that that come up in your day-to-day -day experience with uh, raising young children. You know, we don't force him to give hugs to people. You know, that's not something he has to do. We, you know, he can refuse to give a hug if he wants to. We want him to know that he has bodily autonomy. Um, so we, you know, so I think that most American parents don't realize um, how important it is to talk to their kids, even at young ages, in age-appropriate ways about things like consent and appropriateness and not commenting about other people's bodies and things like that and that goes for girls and boys you know you don't need to talk about how uh the boy in your class has a big butt that's not appropriate either and so we um you know we really try hard to address that as it comes up you know it's not i think a lot of parents and i've heard others say this too a lot of parents think that you have to have this one giant huge awkward awful conversation <laughs> But in reality, the much better approach is just to have a million little conversations about these kinds of things as they come up, as they happen, um, and then hope that you're through that, that you're creating some values in your children that will enable them to treat people with respect um, or to recognize when they're not being treated with respect and to stand up for themselves and to say something uh, to others about it if necessary. Um, so I believe that social connection is so valuable just for our mental health and, and because we're social creatures, but I think it's also super valuable to addressing these really disturbing underlying social ills that are too easy to uh, think that it's out there, it's someone else, it happens to other people, but not us, not me, um, that it's too easy to explain away or minimize. Um, one, according to uh, one website about domestic violence and and trying to you know educate people about it, um, you know most like one in three teens have experienced dating violence, but eighty percent of parents don't think dating violence is a problem, or don't know that it's a problem, right? So there's a huge disconnect there um, that stems from a lack of social connection between parents and their children, or older adults and other people's kids, right? Because because maybe your, uh, a child doesn't want to go to their parents, but maybe they can go to a friend, right? Um, during the, the pandemic, the Springtide Institute found that a very low percentage of people aged 25 or younger could identify um, a person in their church that they felt comfortable going to and confiding to. Okay. Um, they also found that a very low percentage of pastors or leaders or other people in the church ever reached out to those young people. So we need more social connection 
to address the mental health crisis among young people today. And the good news is that it's not too late. It's never too late. Okay. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe if your kid's 18, 16, it's kind of late to start having those little conversations, but not really, because you could start having those little conversations as things come up. Um, you could start, you know, bringing up topics, bringing up stories from the news or whatever, making little points and, and they'll, they'll get in there. Um, it, it's never too late to have those little conversations. It's also never too late to begin, you know, really fostering friendships, relationships. And it doesn't mean that you like insert yourself in an awkward or weird way, <laughs> but just saying hi. Hey, what's your name? Um, how are you doing? How's school? You know, just simple things like that can mean so much to young people. You know, quick anecdote to illustrate the point. Um, a few months ago, um, me and my son were playing in our church after school, you know, it's one of those big uh, multi-purpose rooms and we put all the chairs away, we had the basketball goal down, we we're playing. There are a couple other young boys playing too and there was this boy I, I didn't know. And so I was like, hi, how are you? What's your name? And he said, oh, you won't be able to pronounce it. <laughs> I said, well, what is it? So then he told me, I was like, okay, cool. I like that name and, and no, I couldn't pronounce it. But then he gave me the nickname and I could handle that just fine. And and this kid went from like, you know, ignoring me, like I might as well not even exist, to like actively talking to me and, t and saying things to me, like as we played in, in this gym for the next little bit. Um, so making the social connections with young people doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be difficult or awkward or weird. It can be as simple as asking their name when you see them. Uh, or meet them for the first time, or saying, hey, how, how's school? How's your summer going? When you run into them. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I think as adults, you know, we kind of get used to, uh, you know, walking past someone we know on the sidewalk, um, you know, on, on our way to somewhere. And it's like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. And we don't, we're not even waiting to hear the answer. We're already like past them and moving on. And they don't get offended because they don't expect us to really care about the answer. You know, we're all just being polite here. Kids don't seem to operate that way. <laughs> they, at least not when they're younger. They, you know, I guess they have to grow into that or learn that um, because it seems like just the, that simple kind of little interaction can be so impactful. They feel seen by this grown up adult who, you know, normally uh, as they adults go, don't really care about them. Uh, they feel seen, they feel valued, and they want to uh, connect with that person, or they feel connected to that person, rather, um, just based on the smallest interaction. So it's not too late. We can do something about it. We can start to do our part to bring those statistics down. Um, and I think, you know, within our churches and also in our communities, um, just reaching out to say hi, what's your name, how are you doing, um, and form those social connections. You know, we can, it can make a difference. You know, we can't control society and culture as a whole, but we can do what we can in our communities and our churches. Thank you as always for listening. Rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Tell others about it. Share this with others on social media. Uh, <laughs> trust me, it won't hurt their, their mental health. It might actually help them if it's this episode. Uh, thank you as always for listening and God bless.